Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. For a long time, I have wanted to interview the composer Jimmy Webb, and on September 5th, two producers and I, Jonathan McNichol and senior producer Betsy Kaplan, uh, went off to do that. Now, when I say we went off to do that, I mean that it couldn't happen around here. We had arranged to book a studio in Glen Cove, Long Island. So that involved getting up very early and uh, taking the ferry from Bridgeport over to Long Island and journeying to Glen Cove and then meeting Jimmy Webb. So here we go uh, with Jimmy. So anyway, we've come out here to Glen Cove in Long Island. We're in uh, an amazing and beautiful studio run by the legendary Fred Guarino. Uh, we are here with, with Jimmy Webb. And I have to tell you that where I work uh, in Hartford at Connecticut Public, there's often this very beautiful woman walking around in the hallways. And at a certain point, I realized somebody told me, that's Jimmy Webb's wife, at which point I began pestering her about the idea of doing an interview with Jimmy Webb because I'm a big fan and his music has meant so much to me. And so that went on for about a year and it wasn't really getting anywhere. And then I started singing Jimmy Webb's songs to her in the hallway, which made her walk faster away from me. <laughs> First of all, I'm very excited. You don't have to be as excited as I am. That wouldn't be appropriate. I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> You're I'm, nice doing, I'm doing push-ups. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. So I, I want to begin right now, and we can, we can kind of work backwards. I think people like to talk about the thing that they just did. So you've done uh, an album that's unlike anything you've really done in the past. This is Slipcover. Uh, the cover part refers to the fact that this is uh, a, an album of solo piano covers, with one exception, songwriters who are not you. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe just begin by saying, what, where was the impulse for that? What made you want to do this? Uh, it goes back to an album that I wish I had made with Linda Ronstadt that we really never got to make. And uh, some of the songs that we were working on, working on Accidentally Like a Martyr by Warren Zevon, and we were working on Randy Newman's Marie, all kinds of 
heartbreaking music. <laughs> yes, yes. As it came to pass that Linda was not going to be capable of right. I think most people know she doing has Parkinson's like, disease, like, now, a, yeah. like a full-throated yeah. album. Yeah, the idea of the album and the songs themselves: uh, Keith Richard, Mick Jagger's "Moonlight Mile," mm-hmm. and they they sort of all belong to a fantasy album that would be Linda Ronstadt. The songs themselves are also very, very close to my core. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that I experience music as emotionally as as a fan does, yeah. and perhaps even the way some other composers do. Mm. There are certain songs that, that absolutely break me up. I have to stop my car and mm-hmm. you know fiddle, fiddle around with yeah. the Kleenex a little yeah. bit sometimes. So it's not like I'm a, a jaded veteran and, mm. and, you know, notes don't get to me anymore. Right. You know, I mean, notes are ever, still everything. Yeah. So I had never done an instrumental album, and I mm-hmm. thought, I'm going to do at least part of the Linda Ronstadt yeah. album. And I want to do it without her voice. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to try to keep that emotional edge on the songs, as though she were there. Yeah, and and actually... The one song of yours that you do on this album is The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And I, first of all, it's one of the songs that I annoyed your wife with singing to her in the hallway. But also, I always thought that Linda Ronstadt's version of that was the version. Yeah, she killed it. It is the version. She really did. Once the sun did shine And Lord, it felt so So I'll tell you a quick story from last night because it'll make you feel good, I think. Okay. So I'm out walking the dog last night, and I've been taking care of somebody else's dog for four weeks, and I've gotten really attached to the dog. And I'm going to have to give the dog back pretty soon to oh. its rightful owners. And I'm walking along, and I'm thinking about that, and I'm, but I'm also getting ready for this conversation. So I've got my phone, and I've got cordless earbuds in, and I start to walk up the driveway, and I'm thinking about the dog, and I suddenly realize I'm crying. And then I realized that your version of Lullaby is, play, is playing in my earbuds. And it, it, it plus the dog are making me cry. I'm thinking, Jimmy just got me. Jimmy and Billy Joel, they just got me. Um, and, yeah, well, that, he's, he's a good partner to have. Yeah. It's, it so happens that we, we live in the same community. Mm-hmm. So we see each other occasionally. Well, this song, Lullaby, has something to do with one of your kids, right? I was going through a divorce. He was going through a divorce. Mm -hmm. And I was at Madison Square Garden the night he closed the show with Lullaby, Good Night, My Darling. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I think about, like, not not being home with my little girl at Mm -hmm. night. So the tears, like, Mm -hmm. they go rolling down my cheek. And he, he said... Yeah, it happens to me during the show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always amazed by performers who can perform. Like Bernadette Peters can keep singing while tears are just rushing down her face. I don't know how somebody does that. Yeah, it's it's a powerful tool of communication. And it's 
it's not just another language. It's, it's a completely different art form that takes us, I think, evokes nostalgia mm-hmm. more than anything, almost more than the smell of a flower. Right. If you hear a certain song, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're back in college. You can <laughs> remember those faces again. You yeah. see that guy and you go, I forgot all about him, but you're listening to the song. Mm-hmm. It takes you there. You know? Right. So do you want to play a little bit of Lullaby right well, now? Do you feel like doing that? Well, you know, I, I, I would definitely do it. To, to honor my friend. That's enough, right? Yeah, that's enough. We, you know, we, can, we can work with that. I've got so many things I want to ask you about. Uh, particularly, listening to your version, I hear, I hear some Oklahoma that you put in there. You know, a little bit of your own sound. That I mean, do you feel like when you cover there's somebody a, else's work, what are you putting in? What, well, what are you bringing a, to it? There's an affectation, if you will, that really is part of country music called mm. slip key, which is also speaks to the title of the to the thing. title of yeah. the project. And slip key is is just a, a thing that originated in Nashville and was really perfected by the great Floyd Kramer. There's kids out there who will not recognize this, but this is a huge record. It's only a part of what I do. Right. It's just uh, something that is sometimes there. It's Mm -hmm. not something that I lean heavily on. Right. It's interesting to me. But I wasn't afraid to use it on this album. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want the whole idea of covering something anyway is you bring something to it. It's very plaintive. It's a piano player trying to sound like a steel guitar player. (laughs) Yeah. So the. The effect of that on that particular song is kind of Western Russia, southern, yeah. southern Western Russia. A little bit of Georgia. Georgia. There you go. <laughs> um, I, I was curious about the piano that you used, the actual physical piano that you used for this. Is it the one in your house? Is it? It's got a very interesting flavor to it. I think. I like it. Yeah, I love it. It's my it's my bald one. It's my old bald one. Mm-hmm. It's probably about twenty years old. Yeah. I ended up doing virtually all of this record in my living room. I did a couple of things at Cove next mm-hmm. door. Next mm-hmm. door, the piano there is marvelous, and, mm-hmm. and, and I ended up, I think, two of them were done at, mm-hmm. on the Steinway at Cove. Mm-hmm. You know, things like... Mm-hmm. 
anyway, yeah, that's you know, people don't think of Mick Jagger mm-hmm. and and Keith as great songwriters, but they're great songwriters. They're yeah. they're right up there with the very best songwriters. Um, but that's a version of that song nobody's ever heard before, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Jimmy Webb is 73 years old, and he's a kind of an interesting guy. He gets very frustrated with himself if he can't do something the way that he used to be able to do it. Uh, he also had taken the summer off from playing and singing. So as we got into the studio and Jimmy sat down at the piano, there were times when he would be very, very frustrated with himself, uh, and his face would contort in this kind of self-lacerating rage. But there were also times, it took a little while, because Jimmy's been around a long time. I mean, he was a big songwriting star 50 years ago. So he's met a lot of people who want to cozy up to him for a variety of reasons. It takes a while to get the trust of Jimmy Webb. But at a certain point, he decided to confer that upon me. And the one thing that I can also tell you is that when Jimmy Webb smiles at you, which he did several times, maybe even more than several times over the course of two hours in in a studio with him, it really is just like the sun breaking through the clouds. I mean, Jimmy Webb smiling at you, that's like going up, up and away in his beautiful balloon, which is one of the songs he wrote. So you're going to hear some of that uh, as we go along here today. You're going to hear Jimmy play. You're going to hear Jimmy sing, and I'll tell you some more stories from that day as we go along, too. say that this show, this project, was a very different kind of experience for all of us who worked on it together. Um, you know, usually, I mean, we're, we're no strangers to working hard on a show and having days go by where we're adding different things and pre-recording different segments and putting it all together. We, we do that with some regularity. I don't know that we ever got up at six o'clock in the morning and, and, and worked on something and journeyed and stayed together, the three of us staying together uh, as we you know, went all over Long Island and then we had a flat tire. And, and I have to say another thing about this because it somehow or other fits into the narrative and it maybe fits into the whole idea of 
the way music makes us happy, the way music stirs our emotions and becomes part of the background of our lives. This was so much the emotional backdrop, the kind of beautiful pop music that Jimmy Webb has written in his life, right? Isn't that part of what it does? You These melodies that enchant you and haunt you uh, are often about heartbreak or sadness, uh, but somehow or other pop music manages to call your attention to the beauty of it. She'll turn softly and she will She'll call my name out alone And she will cry Just to think I'd really leave her The time and time again I've tried to tell her so She just didn't know So let me ask you this, when you're singing, do you like your voice? Do you like your singing voice? How do you feel about it? Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. Yeah. Sometimes I listen to a, a record, you know, uh, I, I won't even know I'm listening and it, and, and it, it, it turns out it's one of my songs. It's right. some hardhead web fan out there yeah. who's going to play this record on the air. Yeah. You know, they're they're few and far between. But they're out, they're yeah. out there. Yeah, we're out here. We're out there. And I hear my voice and I go, God, I can't believe my voice is so high. <laughs> and I sound like Mickey Mouse, mm-hmm. you know. And then I hear my voice through the years changing into this other thing. Mm-hmm. That's a lot easier to listen to. It I, becomes more mellow. It becomes it becomes more mid-range. Mm-hmm. You literally hear some growing out of puberty, really, yeah. on record. And I'll I'll be listening to a cut, and I'll go. That's that's a pretty good singer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a that's a good version of Moon Moon is Irish Mistress. Yeah. And I start listening to it's me. Yeah. Well, you're you're. I think you have a very expressive voice, and, and I will say that. And no disrespect. God knows, no disrespect to Glenn Campbell. Yeah. But I don't think I understood the song Galveston until I heard you sing it. And some of the anguish that is in that song is in the way that you sing it. Glenn sang it in a very soaring kind of way, I think. Galveston, he heard as an up-tempo song. Right. You know, I delivered an elegy Yeah. for my buddies right. who were getting uh, coerced mm-hmm. into fighting in a really nasty place yeah. where we had no business. A lot of people don't hear that at all. Right, I, but, but when you do it, we hear it. When 
That's the you way still I, got that note there. <laughs> that's the um, that's the way I played it for yeah. him. And so, it, it, of course, when it came out, it was like Galveston, oh Galveston. Yeah, so like Galveston's a pretty good place. Yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah. like, oh well, well, the, the, those who come to my shows have heard this joke a million times, but it was like Glenn's. My mine was like a piece, like a like almost a dirge, mm-hmm. you know, for for the the, the dying. Yeah. And and uh, and Glenn's was like, let's go out there and kick their butts. <laughs> Something, you know. <laughs> but he sang like, I am not in the same room when it comes to singing. Right. And and one of the things that I used to be subject to was a lot of comparison to. Mm-hmm. The artists that were recording my songs. I was right. a very lucky kid. I was yeah. being recorded by Barbara Streisand, Mr. Sinatra, Glenn Campbell, Linda Ronstadt, Fifth Dimension, uh, Billy Billy Davis, yeah. one of my favorite singers, yeah. singers in the world, and, and Marilyn McCoo had a hit, had a million seller with one less bell to answer. Mm-hmm. So the people that I was around could all sing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't that I did I, I sang so so badly. It was that they sang so well, mm-hmm. you know. And I assume as a songwriter, at a certain point, I was telling Fred while uh, we were out there in the in, in his room uh, a story about Richard Rogers couldn't stand to have anyone tamper with the music as it was on the page. Well, I've heard that. Yeah, issue. and I can't remember who did My Blue Heaven, but somebody did it. Some pop group did it, had a big hit with it, and he wanted to sue them because they weren't singing the song Because right. they changed his song. Yeah, they song. changed the song. But, I mean, I assume as a songwriter, you're trying to I wish he work- could walk this earth with me <laughs> for 24 hours. <laughs> right, cause, but you can't do anything about that, right? You have yeah. to give in to it. Yeah. yeah. You, you, well, as you know, you can license a song one time. Yeah. So that that's basically God giving you one choice. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm going to see if I can get Rosemary Clooney to do this, yeah. okay? And then the board opens up, <laughs> yep. and any and and anybody, absolutely anybody, including Weird Al Yankovic, <laughs> <laughs> can do his sir his version of your song. Yeah, but I mean, I think even Richard Rodgers was persuaded, probably by Oscar Hammerstein, 
that the royalties on this song well, <laughs> would be, you know, I mean, you, my, don't, you don't want nobody to record your my song. My impression of Mr. Rogers has always been of one who was wound slightly yep. too tight. A bit tight, yeah. On the other hand, Oscar Hammerstein was like the Buddha. Mm-hmm. And he, he would admit to things that uh, writers in those days would not admit to this. Right. But he would admit that he just used the words that sounded best to him, mm-hmm. that he didn't understand exactly what they meant. Right. Well, nobody would think twice about saying that, that today in yeah. this environment, which is, hey, cuckoo crazy, mm-hmm. for a bona fide liturgist mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, of sacred Broadway music. Right. For him to say something like that, it's almost shocking. It's like, wow, maybe you should have kept that one to yourself. Well, you know? there's a story about this, and it'll lead to a good Jimmy <laughs> Webb place. Okay, so there's supposedly a story. Hammerstein's trying to get Rogers interested in the musical that will become Oklahoma. Right. They're at a party, and he slips a piece of paper into his pocket, into Rogers' pocket. And he says, don't look at it till you get home. Rogers gets home, takes the piece of paper out. It says, there's a bright golden mist on the meadow. And and he calls up Hammerstein yeah, and says, he says, OK, we're doing the musical. Now, you, in your own universe, you are Rogers and Hammerstein. So I'm interested, who, who talks first? Is it the Jimmy Webb who says, I am a lineman for the county? Or is it the Jimmy Webb who goes, da, 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 da? Uh, who talks first? Uh, interesting. It's an interesting question and, and usually quite easily evaded. But you've, <laughs> <laughs> you've asked it in a way that... Makes uh, makes it almost impossible to avoid answering mm. you. I would say that probably the the words speak first. Uh, this is a terrible cliche because the reason I know it's a cliche is because I made it a cliche. <laughs> but I mentioned in my first book on songwriting, uh, Tunesmith, mm-hmm. that no song can go very badly lo- uh, wrong if it's grounded in a great title. For instance. White Christmas. Well, mm. it's a great title, mm-hmm. and you haven't heard another song like it because yeah. no one could write one as good mm-hmm. as that one. And it keeps the song on the road. It's yeah. like automatic driving. It keeps it on course. Paul Simon had written a song called Still Crazy After All mm-hmm. These Years. And in my book, I said, anybody could write a song called Still Crazy After All These Years. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's coming up with that line right. that's hard to yeah. do. Yeah. Well, I think um, I think one of the great things about Wichita Lineman is it's not just the title. That opening line, I am a lineman for the county and I drive the main road, That that's a great opening line. It throws you into an environment that you haven't been in before. There aren't any other pop songs. And the most that. important line in a song is the first line. Yeah. I think so, too. Well, and in and, and descending order of importance, maybe in ascending order of importance, yeah. the first line and the last line. Yeah, yeah. Because it, hopefully between those two lines, you've taken the listener on a journey. Mm-hmm. You've done some sort of reveal. Yeah. You know, take us someplace for mm. crying out loud. <laughs> you know, like right. uh, I loved him, too, the comedian George, George Carlin. Carlin, okay. George yeah. Carlin. Yeah. Uh, George Carlin, who said, um, it's the obligation of the artist to be on their way somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I was, you know, I loved that. Yeah. Because you can tell the difference between works of art that are going places mm-hmm. and works of art that going that aren't going anywhere. Right. I have a gr- favorite first line in pop music that I happen to know is a song that you also revere. 
And it's, I think one of the greatest first lines is, you never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. Because, I mean, right Bill, away, they've got you by the lapels, right? Yeah. But they got you by the lapels. We were down in yeah. Brazil. Yeah. I read that story. Yeah. And, and um, so I said to, to, to Bill, I said, you know, how are you, how are you getting along with these? With these uh, fashionistas, these mm-hmm. these like beautiful Brazilian, right. you know, ladies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, they they they're so they seem so warm and accept, but they're, they're distant. They mm-hmm. they have a they have a rigorous social, what, the way you approach them and everything. And I said, and yet, and yet I, I, every time I see you, Bill, I said, you, you have two or three of them with you, <laughs> and he said. You never close your eyes anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how good that was, Bill. Yeah. I'm sorry, but it, right. was, it was an attempt. Right. You've written a lot of great first lines. One of them that I love, and this is maybe a song you haven't played or sung in a while, but I, and one of the uh, opening line, and I had this album, and it blew my mind, was, um, If they ever drop the bomb, you said... I'll find you in the flames. Well, what an opening it's a, line. It's a hook. Yeah, isn't that? I mean, you got to know what comes next. You want to know what's coming. To me, that's old school. Yeah. That's the way we sort of used to write them. Right. And nobody wants to really hear me whining about the way we used to write songs. <laughs> I, I do. I, I would like to hear you whine about that. But, you know, it was a golden age, really, uh, what I've also tried to do with this album is is point out that in our generation we had our own Rodgers and Hammersteins, oh, yeah. we had our uh, Frank Blessers, we had mm-hmm. we had those people, Brian Wilson, we had Billy, we had uh, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder for crying out loud, mm-hmm. um, Randy Newman, Randy Newman, we had these in uh, Joni Mitchell. Uh, that see that that song rips me up every time I yeah, hear it. A even case of even you, yeah. now that I've, I've yeah. recorded it. And um, have you heard the Prince version of that song? No. Prince does an amazing no. cover. Uh, oddly enough, no. I'd like to hear an it. Amazing cover. Um, but uh, that was that was a lyric. That was a, a kind of lyric that changed songwriting. Yeah. The world of songwriting. I mean, I'm trying to remember what was the first line of that. Um, just before our love got lost, you said, my love is constant, constant as, as the northern, northern star. Constant, constant in the, the darkness. darkness. Where's Where that, that at? I'll if meet you, you want at the me, bar. I'll be at the bar. Yeah. Just before our love got lost, you said, I am as constant as a northern star. And I said, constantly in the darkness. Where's that at? If you want me, I'll be in the bar. Uh, that was a different. That was a new that is, you know, kind a of amazing. songwriting, yep. uh, and, and it, it was it was vulnerability, mm-hmm. where uh, formalism and the traditions of songwriting had always kept a certain distance between the writer and the listener. Mm-hmm. Because there were certain rules that were followed. There were verses. There were choruses. Mm-hmm. There yep. were break strains. They were now all of a sudden. Lyric writing is conversational. Mm-hmm. 
let the record show that Laura Savini is in here bringing us coffee right now, and that's and carrot cake, and I'm making a lot of noise. Well. <laughs> no, we don't. We like the noise. You're 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 part it of this. Sounds story. like a giant rat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, terrible. Um, they didn't have oat milk, so this is regular milk. So I don't uh, know uh, this is all getting on the show. I'm just telling you. That. I'm out of here. <laughs> We're going to take a little break. Actually, you're going to take a little break, and then we'll come back to you with more Jimmy Webb and probably more of his wife Laura crinkling up papers and knocking over coffee cups. Uh, Isaac Hayes is going to end this segment. It's one of Jimmy's favorite renditions of "By the Time I Get to Phoenix." By the time. I probably can't emphasize enough was what a special experience this was for us and for me and Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McNichol. I mean, we spent a whole day together. We had a lot of fun and we didn't want to kill each other, which is kind of amazing. Uh, and we had this great time uh, talking to, to Jimmy Webb. We had some problems, including a flat tire, which is never good. But for example, while we were working on the flat tire, Fred Guarino, who runs, you know, a pretty prestigious uh, musical production and recording studio, came down and fussed over us and he started calling gas stations because he didn't want us to drive home on the donut. He thought that wasn't safe. This guy had met us for the first time two or three hours ago. You would have thought we were his kids or something. And then when he couldn't find the right gas station to deal with it, he still said, look, I don't want you driving on the donut. Just find some place to get it fixed. And that's what we did. We went and we stopped in this place. We're the most jolly person I have ever encountered during the throes of motorist travail attended to us. Uh, he was this just super happy guy who uh, was kind of teasing us about Betsy Kaplan's Prius and pointing out that he owned all these muscle cars that get like 25 blocks to the gallon. But he fixed up our tire, he charged us 20 bucks, and he never stopped smiling the entire time. So I don't know, there was a way that this whole experience of getting together with Jimmy Webb and sharing the music. And there was a way that this had a bigger context to it. And then it was capped off as we returned uh, on the ferry from Port Jefferson, New York to Bridgeport. 
it was just happened to be one of those days that you get, maybe right at the end of summer, the beginning of fall, where the atmosphere is just perfect uh, to pick up the sun as it's setting. And so Long Island Sound was just aflame with orange and pink and purple and red. And even as we drew close to Bridgeport, which, let's be honest, is not known as a scenic city, uh, there was kind of a beauty to it, uh, to this, this industrial landscape that just was washed uh, in this Hudson River School painterly uh, uh, sunset. I mean, it was in a way as if the sky and the day knew that we had been off talking to Jimmy Webb, knew that we'd been talking about Wichita linemen and the moon being a harsh mistress and was kind of putting a little pink and purple and orange bow around this day. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk um, about some of the things that are also in the book, The Cake and the Rain. There's, it's weird how right now we're back in 1969 all the time. You know, yeah. the Woodstock movies. I just saw the David Crosby. We're all dying, man. <laughs> well, that could be. That could be. <laughs> no, I just saw the David Crosby documentary. He really does think he's dying. Um, and we just did a show about Charles Manson because every time I go to a movie now, Charles Manson is in it. And then I'm oh, reading your book. Yeah, yeah. And, and you write about that moment. You're in L.A. It is bathed in sun and sex and stimulants. I feel like one thing that broke the cycle temporarily were um, those murders. Were no, they, I no, mean, you knew was, Jay Sebring. You knew. No, I thought, I, to me, it, it, it was broken forever. But Jay used to cut my hair. Mm-hmm. He would always give me advice about get, getting on in Hollywood, mm-hmm. things to do, things not to do. Yep. Don't ever get tangled up. Mm-hmm. Dead? Mm. What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, I mean, the first, there's some things that I mentioned in the book yeah. that nobody else knew about. That Cass until, Elliott was the first person yeah, on the scene? That yeah. Nobody knows that. Yeah. I've had a couple of writers call me up and say, you know, I'm doing this song about the Manson mur- murders. I've run across this thing about Cass Elliott being the first person on the scene. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I don't, I, do you have any way to verify that? Mm-hmm. And I said, no. Uh, you know, other than she told me that she was, yeah, and she didn't come out of her house for a month, and she really disappeared. She yeah. was t- terrified. Everybody, everybody had a bodyguard, and there was a run on bodyguards and mm. gun stores that week. And all of a sudden, you know, the beneficent figure of the hippie, the Christ-like figure with the long hair, mm-hmm. as Alan Alan Ginsberg said about. What is a hippie? Yeah. Allen Ginsberg said, well, a hippie is someone who believes in the acceptance of all human beings. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, hippies were dangerous people. Mm-hmm. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, people weren't picking up guys with guitar cases anymore. Right. To me, that, that was that the 60s ended. All, all of a sudden, the trust was gone and the possibility that something really bad could happen mm-hmm. it was no longer a possibility it was I, I genuinely thought that Charlie Manson was was crazy but I'm not so sure that he was that crazy he thought that if he strung up some white people in the Hollywood Hills there'd be a race war 
he had a, well, he had a swastika right in the yeah. middle of his forehead. Yeah. You know, but even when we were looking at it, we didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. now we're beginning to realize it runs a little deeper than Charlie Manson. Right. But there was also danger coming to you from yourselves. You guys were taking a lot of things that weren't good for you. And that kept going, right? I mean, ultimately, you can protect yourself. You can try to protect yourself against Charlie Manson, but you have to protect yourself against yourself, too, right? You're taking stuff that's Yeah, and your best friend. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was a a non-cognitive something going on there Mm -hmm. with the self-destruct module, you know, uh, one one friend of mine, I won't go into detail, was working on underwater speakers at the time, mm-hmm. and actually it was a technology that w- that was working. You could get in your pool, you could get in your pool and and um, porpoise around under mm-hmm. the water, and then mm-hmm. and the stones would be rocking, you know, mm-hmm. like a, on the bottom of the swimming pool. It's just a, an example of where things were on the. You know, cray-cray scale. (laughs) He was testing his speakers in the pool, and he was really, really high. Mm -hmm. And he ran out of oxygen and died on the bottom of the swimming pool, Mm -hmm. listening to rock and roll. (laughs) It's inconceivable. It's like, could you run that by me again? What happened? Mm -hmm. And I was... I was taking too much Mm -hmm. stuff. I got, got, uh, you know, into some bad... What I thought at the time was cocaine, mm-hmm. and the '70s were very druggy. Wasn't the end of the drug thing at all. Right. It just got. In fact, the the, the drugs got edgier and mm-hmm. they got stronger. And they, but do you feel? I mean, as I said, I just there's a new documentary out about David Crosby, and everybody watching this documentary is going, "Why the hell are you still alive?" <laughs> um, but I mean, it's a little bit of the luck of the well, draw, right? You probably there's a lot of people who could ask the same question but yeah. I, but I have a little list of people who didn't make it yeah and I I don't I don't want to get personal about that particular thing right mm-hmm. now because um, there there are children involved in th- mm-hmm. and family involved and things like oh yeah that. well one person I'd like to get personal with you about because you write about him a lot in your book I had a chance to spend an afternoon with him one time is Harry Nilsson, who's yeah. a great friend. He runs all the way through this book. He's obviously was a huge uh, thing in your life, a huge presence in, in your life. And and there's a guy who didn't make it, right? I mean, you know. Right. Um, there were a certain number of people who I would identify as self-destructive, but really, to the, to, to the point where I would talk to Harry sometime and I'd say, man, you got to lighten up a little bit, you know. He had heart trouble, and he had all these problems. And on top of that, he's mm-hmm. he's, he's he's adding these drugs. He says, listen, man. He said, I'm going to run it until it breaks. That's what Harry said to yeah. me. Well, I, I you know, um, I promised myself I would bring this up. So there used to be a show, as you oh, know. Oh, and by the way, yeah, we we got a hold, we got a hold of the same bad batch. And we both went, we both went comatose. Yeah. And I, I forgot how to play the piano. Wow. For a month, mm-hmm. for a month, I would just look at it. I knew, I knew that it did something, mm-hmm. but I couldn't tell you what it did. 
And I, then, I, then it got to be like a, I would sit in the chair and I'd glare at it, mm -hmm. you know. Slowly but surely, you know, my brains came back to like something like a, mm -hmm. like a normal thing. And uh, Harry was carrying on his a similar battle and they kept us separate. <laughs> they kept <laughs> us in separate cells. But uh, I never hit it that hard mm. after that. I think that I, I had a little bit of a speed control, you know, from that, from forgetting how to play the piano. Hey, that's not a joke. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's the end of your career. Mm -hmm. It's the end of your life. And it's the saddest story anybody ever heard. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be that. Right. So um, I began to, you know, try to keep my, at least draw some lines mm -hmm. and not just, <laughs> not those kind of not lines. Not those kinds of lines, no. Uh, I began to try to be, exercise more good judgment. Mm -hmm. I mean, Harry Nilsson was so interesting, too, because here's a guy who's a tremendous songwriter. Also, I think a pretty tremendous vocalist, a guy who could sing oh, he was so nimble. Our, I mean, he was our singer. So wistfully in everybody's talking, but then jump into the fire, which has enjoyed kind of a renaissance lately. People see it now as this kind of hard rock song uh, about maybe some of the things even we're talking about right now. But he also was a tremendous cover artist, too. I mean... This, his version of Simon Smith and his Dancing Bear, yeah. which is a great song, well, is better than Randy Newman's. Seen at the nicest places where well-fed faces all stop to stare. Making the grandest entrance of Simon Smith and his Dancing Bear, their lovers. Won't they? The feet don't they? He killed it, yep. and even even Randy, if you ask him, mm -hmm. and you may have a chance to ask him, he'll tell you mm -hmm. he knocked it out of the park. Yeah, Randy did not expect, did not expect those kind of results. Mm -hmm. I, you can see in hindsight, well, these guys were made for each other, right? right. But at the time, it was yeah. just, is this going to work? Yeah. You know, we had singers. We had we had Harry, we had Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. Paul can sing like a bird. Mm -hmm. We had Brian Wilson. Mm -hmm. Brian can sing like a bird. And there was Glenn Campbell, mm -hmm. who you wouldn't want to stand off in a singing contest nope. with a or Glenn a guitar Campbell. playing contest. Yet there was this this uh, this idea that again mm -hmm. it, it recurs the theme that this is disposable music. Mm -hmm. These are disposable artists. This work doesn't come anywhere close to the Great American Songbook because mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense, mm -hmm. you know. And that Harry Nielsen, why does he make those weird noises? <laughs> well, also, you know, he had his voice like in yeah. this crazy place. Yeah, do it, you know. He was doing things that you know nobody had ever done. Well, he was also, I think, very conscious of everything that had come before, yeah. you know? I mean, so the, it, that's there in his music, the music hall, the American songbook. He was highly about. intelligent. Yeah. And he um, 
He, came, he walked into my office uh, at 890 Broadway one afternoon. He was always unannounced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he walked into my office, and he had this big sort of campaign button. It was as big as a, a, a teacup, mm-hmm. and it was black, white on black, and it said, don't postpone joy. <laughs> and he, he stuck this thing on him. Mm-hmm. And I had to wear it for the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> is it Mark Mark Hudson? Mark Hudson, who said the funniest thing about it, Harry, I ever heard anyone say, he said, Harry was a ride. <laughs> One thing that's worth communicating to you is that this was a really special experience for me and my producers. But we also had a very unusual experience with Jimmy Webb. The interview ran for two hours. There was a lot of music that we wanted to add in. We've got too much. We've got too much. That's our problem. So we've never done this before, but we're going to come back next week, same time, same place, and do a second part of the Jimmy Webb interview. Right now, because we want to celebrate uh, Jimmy's friendship with his fellow songwriter, Harry Nilsson, we'll go out with Old Friends by Paul Simon. It's on Jimmy's new CD, Slipcover. Old friends, winter companions, the old men Lost in their overcoats, waiting for the sunset The sounds of the city, sifting through trees Settle like dust on the shoulders of the old